Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, if you didn't join us last week, we're looking at the question, who is Jesus according to God? Who is Jesus according to God? And the way we're looking at that is through the lens of Jesus' baptism, specifically as we find it in Mark chapter 1, verse 11. Because here we find these words spoken by God, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is what God has to say about Jesus. And last week I said that this statement says three distinct but connected things about him. Three things that pull upon different threads of the Old Testament. One, that Jesus is God's son. Two, that he is God's beloved, the one whom he loves. And three, that Jesus is the one in whom God is well pleased. The son, the beloved, the one in whom he is well pleased. And this week we're going to look at the second of those three, that Jesus is God's beloved. And to do that, we're going to look at what it means, firstly, for God to love. Secondly, what it means for him to love his son, specifically and uniquely. And thirdly, what does that truth mean for us? So first, what is it that God loves and what is his love like? Well, if we read the Gospels, we see that, that God, in a general sense, loves his creation. We see this when Jesus says that God sends rain and sunshine upon the righteous and the unrighteous, that God has a providential care for all of his creatures. And this is part of the motivation, Jesus tells us, for us to love our enemies. But God doesn't need his creation in order to love. No, according to John in his epistle, our God is love. He is a God who is characterised by the quality of love. He is by nature a loving God. And so prior to his creation, love was still a part, an essential part of God's character and essence. Let's think about that for a little bit. What does God love apart from his creation? Well, here I think the Psalms are especially helpful. In the past uh, few months, as my daughter struggles to sleep at night, one of the things I've been doing is I've been singing the Psalms to her. Possibly explains why she isn't sleeping so well. But as I sing the Psalms, one of the things that strikes me so often is how the Psalms speak about God's qualities and his attributes, his characteristics. And they speak about the things that God loves and God hates. Let me give you one example. In Psalm 11 and 33 and 37, we see the same words that Yahweh loves justice. He loves righteousness. Our God is a God who loves these things. If we were to ask the converse question, what is it that God hates? Again, we could look at the Psalms, but let's think about the Proverbs. God hates haughty eyes, an arrogant spirit, and a lying tongue. 
And so conversely, God loves truth and meekness and humility. These are the things that God loves. Now, if you think about it, all of those attributes, his goodness, his truth, his justice and righteousness, these, these are not things that are abstract, floating in the air, separated from God and, and to which God may be compared. Now, that is not the case. All of those things, truth and goodness and righteousness, they are defined by God himself. He is truth and he is righteousness and he is goodness. And so what that means is that when God says, I love justice and I love righteousness, what he's really saying is that he loves himself because he is the perfect and full expression of that attribute. Now, perhaps you might think, well, that's odd, isn't it? That's, that's strange, to say the least, that, that God loves himself. After all, if we were to say that we love ourselves, if any human being was to say that, that is not an attribute to be praised. In fact, quite the opposite, we would find that uh, wrong and deeply disturbing. But you see, for God, that is actually appropriate. That is right, because God is infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious and infinitely perfect in all of his attributes. God is the only fitting object for his own love. There is nothing higher that he could love. Now, for us, for example, we are not perfect. Even without sin, if we were just creatures, we would not be perfect. And so it would be wrong for us to love ourselves because the proper object of our love would still be God. But for God, that's not the case. He is perfect. He is the proper object of his own love. And so to take the words of that silly Whitney Houston song that to love yourself is the greatest love of all, while for a human being to love yourself is the greatest abomination of all. But for God, it is right, and it is just, and it is good. But as we get into the New Testament, this slightly unusual truth, we might think, or, or uh, an idea that may be alien to us, becomes much more clear in the revelation of who God is as Trinity, because we see in the New Testament that God just doesn't exist solely in isolation. That he is a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a God of three persons in one being. The Father loving and delighting in his Son, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and the Son in return loving and delighting in his Father. And this makes sense because the Son is the sharing in the full perfections of God himself is the proper object of the Father's love. The Father loves the Son because the Son, like him, is perfect. Now, if we understand that, if we understand that the Son is the unique object of his Father's love, as he has in himself the fullness of perfection, then what we have in the New Testament 
is surely a scandal. Because when we read in John 3 that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, then we have the shocking truth that God is willing to give up the son in whom he outpours an infinity of love towards the son who is uniquely worthy of that love. And yet he gives up this son for sinful people like us. You see, the son isn't just merely the the object of God's infinite love, but he is also the demonstration to us of God's infinite love. And I think we see a hint of that even in the wording of the baptism. See, you are my son, my beloved, is very similar to an expression that we find elsewhere in the Bible, in our Old Testament reading from Genesis 22. If you remember that here, God says to Abraham, he says this, Genesis 22, verse 2. To Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and take him and uh, and offer him up as a burnt offering. Now, I think most of us, when we read this, we, we are shocked and in some sense appalled by it. This is a truly an outrageous thing. How can a father sacrifice, kill his only son? Uh, And more, how can God possibly ask him to do that? Well, that is a right response in many ways, because we know from the rest of the Old Testament that, that God does hate child sacrifice. It is an abomination to him, and he punishes the nations that practice it with with great severity. So what's going on here? Well, in, in part, God is testing Abraham. He's testing his obedience. But I think much more importantly, there is a demonstration in this passage of God's love yet to be revealed to humankind. Because in the end, in the climax of that passage, God doesn't let Abraham offer up his son. But if we move forward into biblical history, we see that God was willing to offer up his own son for us. So Abraham didn't have to offer up his son, the son whom he loved, Isaac. But God for us did offer up his son, his only son, whom he loved, Jesus, for our sins and for our salvation. You see, the fact that Jesus is God's beloved son gives greater weight to the gospel. Because how do you know that someone values you? How do you know that someone loves you? It is demonstrated in what they are willing to give up for you. There is nothing more that God can give than his only son. There is no one more worthy, nothing more infinitely precious, nothing, no one in whom he takes greater delight and greater love. And yet he gave his son for us who are sinful men and women.
Now this love, this infinite love, this perfect love, has implications for us, practical implications. As we know the love of God, we are motivated to respond in kind, in love. And this is part of Jesus' prayer for his church. Before Jesus was crucified, before he offered himself up, this is one of the things that he prayed for those who would believe in the apostles' word. This is John 17, verse 23. Jesus prayed that the church may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying that, that there would be unity in the church, that there would be a unity of love, so that the world may know that God loves his people even as he loves his son. The church is to be the visible demonstration to this world of the infinity of God's love to us, which is seen in his love for his only son, whom he gave for us. This is why earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said that by this shall all the world know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. The love and unity within the church demonstrates the loving character of the God whom we worship and serve. And so as I think about that, we want to look at some ways in which that would be demonstrated in our church life. Now, of course, we could think about the, the classic chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the wedding sermon that we so often hear. What is love? Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, many of these things are good things to think about, particularly as we go into a new phase of MCO, where patience will be tested where irritability will rise, uh, where it will be tempting to be rude, where it will be tempting to keep a record of wrongs. That thing that your housemate does or your spouse does that just grates you and grinds you and really frustrates you. And you're keeping a mental tally of what they're doing so you can respond in kind. Well, brothers and sisters, as those who have been called into the love of God, who are united into the Son, whom he loves perfectly, then responding in love is putting away these things, is being gracious and gentle with one another. It is adopting an attitude of humility. It is being charitable and overlooking their flaws. And if those flaws need correcting in love, then being eager and willing to forgive just as God has forgiven us in Christ. But I want to look at another part of scripture before we close. I want to look at 1 John, because here the apostle has a lot to say about love. I want to pick out two things in particular. First, he says that the love of God is incompatible with the love of the world. And second, he says that the love of God will be demonstrated in love for the people in the church in concrete, sacrificial ways. So first, as we look at First uh, John chapter 2, he says very clearly, Brothers, do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, following Christ presents us with a crisis. Where will we love? What shall we choose to love? Where will we devote our time and our energy and our labour? Will it be in the things of this world, material possessions, and getting up prestige in this life? Or will it be in following God in ways that are costly to all of those things? Sometimes we believe that we can have both. We believe that we can be wealthy and successful in this world and also to be following God. Now, sometimes that is possible. But a lot of the times we are deluding ourselves. We're not willing to face the sacrifices that the gospel clearly places upon us with our position and with our possessions. And I think this becomes clearer as we think about the second point. As we look in 1 John chapter 3, by this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. How do we know that God loves us? We know it because he gave his son the object of his infinite love. If we recognise what God has done for us, then we will be willing to give up the little and insignificant things to demonstrate our love to other people, especially those who are within the church. We are already in a very difficult time. And for many in our church, this is going to be an even harder time. Psychologically, it will be trying. For those who feel the anxiety of the, the pandemic and the consequences for their health, it will be difficult. For many, they may lose their jobs, undergo retrenchment, or they have to take a cut in their income, and their financial circumstances will be really hard. This is a time as a church where we have the opportunity to demonstrate how much we understand the love of God in Christ by how much we are willing to give and to help to love other people. You see, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If that is the case, if we see other people around us who are in material need, and yet we are not willing to give, whether it is of our money, or if we see people in spiritual need and we are not willing to give of our time, then it shows in part that maybe we are not loving. Now, I'm very thankful for all the things that I have seen. I've seen many things in the past few months, people giving so sacrificially of their time, people giving so much of their money to help people who cannot afford operations or cannot afford basic living expenses. 
Brothers and sisters, if that's you, keep going, keep persevering. That is the right thing to do. That is pleasing in God's sight. And for those of you who struggle to do that, and I know that that is myself included, then let us be encouraged more and more, not out of a sense of guilt, not out of a sense of shame, not out of a sense of legal demand, but in the humble recognition that God loves us so much and that as we are united to his son, we are the object of his perfect love. And that love will be completed in the end. And I pray that for each one of us and for our church, that we will be characterized as a community of love. And so through this, the Klang Valley and Malaysia will know that God loves us even as he loves his one and only, his blessed, his beloved son. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is by nature love, and in eternity past you have loved your son, your perfect son, with infinite love in the unity of the Holy Spirit. We praise you that this is the kind of God that you are. And we praise you more that you are willing to give up your son for the sake of sinful people like us. Thank you that we know the infinite love that you have for us in concrete action. And thank you that we are now the object of your full and perfect love as we stand in Christ. Grant, we pray, that we would be those who are willing to love you and love other people in the same concrete sacrificial love. And we pray that in our church, in the ways in which we can, that you'll be helping us more and more to be spurred on to love and good works. And this we ask for the glory of your name, that you may be proclaimed in this world. And we ask that we will be motivated wholly and entirely by a sincere knowledge that you love us. And we pray these things in the name of your blessed and only Son. Amen.